Chapter Twelve of A Sicilian Romance by Anne Radcliffe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twelve. The evening now sunk in darkness, and the hour was fast approaching, which would decide the fate of Julia. Trembling anxiety subdued every other sensation, and as the minutes passed, her fears increased. At length, she heard the gates of the monastery fastened for the night. The bell rang, the signal for repose, and the passing footsteps of the nuns told her they were hastening to obey it. After some time, all was silent. Julia did not yet dare to venture forth. She employed the present interval in interesting and affectionate conversation with Madame de Menon, to whom, notwithstanding her situation, her heart bade a sorrowful adieu. The clock struck twelve when she arose to depart. Having embraced her faithful friend with tears of mingled grief and anxiety, she took a lamp in her hand, and with cautious, fearful steps descended through the long winding passages to a private door which opened into the church of the monastery. The church was gloomy and desolate, and the feeble rays of the lamp she bore gave only light enough to discover its chilling grandeur. As she passed silently along the aisles, she cast a look of anxious examination around, but Ferdinand was nowhere to be seen. She paused in timid hesitation, fearful to penetrate the gloomy obscurity which lay before her, yet dreading to return. As she stood examining the place, vainly looking for Ferdinand, yet fearing to call, lest her voice should betray her, a hollow groan arose from a part of the church very near her. It chilled her heart, and she remained fixed to the spot. She turned her eyes a little to the left, and saw light appear through the chinks of a sepulchre at some distance. The groan was repeated. A low murmuring succeeded, and while she yet gazed, an old man issued from the vault with a lighted taper in his hand. Terror now subdued her, and she uttered an involuntary shriek. In the succeeding moment a noise was heard in a remote part of the fabric, and Ferdinand, rushing forth from his concealment, ran to her assistance. The old man, who appeared to be a friar, and who had been doing penance at the monument of a saint, now approached. His countenance expressed a degree of surprise and terror almost equal to that of Julia's, who knew him to be the confessor of Vincent. Ferdinand seized the father, and laying his hand upon his sword, threatened him with death if he did not instantly swear to conceal forever his knowledge of what he then saw, and also assist them to escape from the abbey. "'Ungracious boy,' replied the father, in a calm voice, "'desist from this language, nor add to the follies of youth the crime of murdering or terrifying a defenseless old man.' Your violence would urge me to become your enemy, did not previous inclination tempt me to be your friend. I pity the distresses of the Lady Julia, to whom I am no stranger, and will cheerfully give her all the assistance in my power. At these words Julia revived, and Ferdinand, reproved by the generosity of the father, and conscious of his own inferiority, shrank back. I have no words to thank you, said he, or to entreat your pardon for the impetuosity of my conduct. Your knowledge of my situation must plead my excuse. It does, replied the father, but we have no time to lose. Follow me. They followed him through the church to the cloisters, at the extremity of which was a small door, which the friar unlocked. It opened upon the woods. 
This path, said he, leads through an intricate part of the woods to the rocks that rise on the right of the abbey. In their recesses you may secrete yourself till you are prepared for a longer journey. But extinguish your light, it may betray you to the Marquis's people, who are dispersed about this spot. Farewell, my children, and God's blessing be upon ye. Julia's tears declared her gratitude. She had no time for words. They stepped into the path, and the father closed the door. They were now liberated from the monastery, but danger awaited them without, which it required all their caution to avoid. Ferdinand knew the path which the friar had pointed out to be the same that led to the rocks where his horses were stationed, and he pursued it with quick and silent steps. Julia, whose fears conspired with the gloom of night to magnify and transform every object around her, imagined at each step that she took she perceived the figures of men and fancied every whisper of the breeze the sound of pursuit. They proceeded swiftly till Julia, breathless and exhausted, could go no farther. They had not rested many minutes when they heard a rustling among the bushes at some distance, and soon after distinguished a low sound of voices. Ferdinand and Julia instantly renewed their flight, and thought they still heard voices advance upon the wind. This thought was soon confirmed, for the sounds now gained fast upon them, and they distinguished words which served only to heighten their apprehensions when they reached the extremity of the woods. The moon, which was now up, suddenly emerging from a dark cloud, discovered to them several men in pursuit, and also showed to the pursuers the course of the fugitives. They endeavored to gain the rocks, where the horses were concealed, and which now appeared in view. These they reached when the pursuers had almost overtaken them, but their horses were gone. Their only remaining chance of escape was to fly into the deep recesses of the rock. They therefore entered a winding cave from whence branched several subterraneous avenues, at the extremity of one of which they stopped. The voices of men now vibrated in tremendous echoes through the various and secret caverns of the place, and the sound of footsteps seemed fast approaching. Julia trembled with terror, and Ferdinand drew his sword, determined to protect her to the last. A confused volley of voices now sounded up that part of the cave, where Ferdinand and Julia lay concealed. In a few moments the steps of the pursuers suddenly took a different direction, and the sounds sunk gradually away and were heard no more. Ferdinand listened attentively for a considerable time, but the stillness of the place remained undisturbed. It was now evident that the men had quitted the rock, and he ventured forth to the mouth of the cave. He surveyed the wilds around, and as far as his eye could penetrate, and distinguished no human being, but in the pauses of the wind he still thought he heard a sound of distant voices. As he listened in anxious silence, his eye caught the appearance of a shadow which moved upon the ground near where he stood. He started back within the cave, but in a few minutes again ventured forth. The shadow remained stationary, but having watched it for some time, Ferdinand saw it glide along till it disappeared behind a point of rock. He had no doubt that the cave was watched, and that it was one of his late pursuers, whose shade he had seen. He returned, therefore, to Julia, and remained near an hour hid in the deepest recess of the rock, when no sound having interrupted the profound silence of the place, he at length once more ventured to the mouth of the cave. Again he threw a fearful look around, but discerned no human form. 
the soft moonbeam slept upon the dewy landscape, and the solemn stillness of midnight wrapped the world. Fear heightened to the fugitives the sublimity of the hour. Ferdinand now led Julia forth, and they passed silently along the shelving foot of the rocks. They continued their way without farther interruption, and among the cliffs, at some distance from the cave, discovered to their inexpressible joy their horses, who, having broken their fastenings, had strayed thither, and had now laid themselves down to rest. Ferdinand and Julia immediately mounted, and descending to the plains, took the road that led to a small seaport at some leagues distant, whence they could embark for Italy. They travelled for some hours through gloomy forests of beech and chestnut, and their way was only faintly illuminated by the moon, which shed a trembling luster through the dark foliage, and which was seen but at intervals as the passing clouds yielded to the power of her rays. They reached at length the skirts of the forest. The gray dawn now appeared, and the chill morning air bit shrewdly. It was with inexpressible joy that Julia observed the kindling atmosphere, and soon after the rays of the rising sun touching the tops of the mountains, whose sides were yet involved in dark vapors. Her fears dissipated with the darkness. The sun now appeared amid clouds of inconceivable splendor, and unveiled a scene which in other circumstances Julia would have contemplated with rapture. From the side of the hill, down which they were winding, a veil appeared, from whence arose wild and lofty mountains, whose steeps were clothed with hanging woods, except where here and there a precipice projected its bold and rugged front. Here a few half-withered trees hung from the crevices of the rock, and gave a picturesque wilderness to the object. There clusters of half-seen cottages, rising from among tufted groves, embellished the green margin of a stream, which meandered in the bottom and bore its waves to the blue and distant main. The freshness of the morning breathed over the scene, and vivified each color of the landscape. The bright dewdrops hung trembling from the branches of the trees, which at intervals overshadowed the road, and the sprightly music of the birds saluted the rising day. Notwithstanding her anxiety, the scene diffused a soft complacency over the mind of Julia. About noon they reached the port, where Ferdinand was fortunate enough to obtain a small vessel, but the wind was unfavorable, and it was past midnight before it was possible for them to embark. When the dawn appeared, Julia returned to the deck, and viewed with a sigh of unaccountable regret the receding coast of Sicily. But she observed with high admiration the light gradually spreading through the atmosphere, darting a feeble ray over the surface of the waters, which rolled in solemn soundings upon the distant shores. Fiery beams now marked the clouds, and the east glowed with increasing radiance, till the sun rose at once above the waves, and illuminating them with a flood of splendor, diffused gaiety and gladness around. The bold concave of the heavens, uniting with the vast expanse of the ocean, formed a coup d'oeil, striking and sublime magnificence of the scenery inspired Julia with delight and her heart dilating with high enthusiasm, she forgot the sorrows which had oppressed her. The breeze wafted the ship gently along for some hours, when it gradually sunk into a calm. The glassy surface of the waters was not curled by the lightest air, and the vessel floated heavily on the bosom of the deep. Sicily was yet in view, and the present delay agitated Julia with wild apprehension. 
Towards the close of day a light breeze sprang up, but it blew from Italy, and a train of dark vapors emerged from the verge of the horizon, which gradually accumulating, the heavens became entirely overcast. The evening shut in suddenly, the rising wind, the heavy clouds that loaded the atmosphere, and the thunder which murmured afar off terrified Julia and threatened a violent storm. The tempest came on, and the captain vainly sounded for anchorage. It was deep sea, and the vessel drove furiously before the wind. The darkness was interrupted only at intervals by the broad expanse of vivid lightings, which quivered upon the waters, and disclosing the horrible gaspings of the waves, served to render the succeeding darkness more awful. The thunder, which burst in tremendous crashes above, the loud roar of the waves below, the noise of the sailors, and the sudden cracks and groanings of the vessel, conspired to heighten the tremendous sublimity of the scene. Far on the rocky shores the surges sound, the lashing whirlwinds cleave the vast profound, while high in air amid the rising storm, driving the blast sits danger's blackening form. Julia lay fainting with terror and sickness in the cabin, and Ferdinand, though almost hopeless himself, was endeavoring to support her, when a loud and dreadful crash was heard from above. It seemed as if the whole vessel was parted. The voices of the sailors now rose together, and all was confusion and uproar. Ferdinand ran up to the deck and learned that part of the main mast, borne away by the wind, had fallen upon the deck, whence it had rolled overboard. It was now past midnight, and the storm continued with unabated fury. For four hours the vessel had been driven before the blast, and the captain now declared it was impossible she could weather the tempest much longer, ordered the longboat to be in readiness. His orders were scarcely executed when the ship bulged upon a reef of rocks, and the impetuous waves rushed into the vessel. A general groan ensued. Ferdinand flew to save his sister, whom he carried to the boat, which was nearly filled by the captain and most of the crew. The sea ran so high that it appeared impracticable to reach the shore, but the boat had not moved many yards when the ship went to pieces. The captain now perceived, by the flashes of lightning, a high rocky coast at about the distance of half a mile. The men struggled hard at the oars, but almost as often as they gained the summit of a wave, it dashed them back again, and made their labor of little avail. After much difficulty and fatigue they reached the coast, where a new danger presented itself. They beheld a wild rocky shore, whose cliffs appeared inaccessible, and which seemed to afford little possibility of landing. A landing, however, was at last effected, and the sailors, after much search, discovered a kind of pathway cut in the rock, which they ascended in safety. The dawn now faintly glimmered, and they surveyed the coast, but could discover no human habitation. They imagined they were on the shores of Sicily, but possessed no means of confirming this conjecture. Terror, sickness, and fatigue had subdued the strength and spirits of Julia, and she was obliged to rest upon the rocks. The storm now suddenly subsided, and the total calm which succeeded to the wild tumult of the winds and waves produced a striking and sublime effect. The air was hushed in a death-like stillness, but the waves were yet violently agitated, and by the increasing light parts of the wreck were seen floating wide upon the face of the deep. 
Some sailors who had missed the boat were also discovered clinging to pieces of the vessel and making towards the shore. On observing this, their shipmates immediately descended to the boat and putting off to sea rescued them from their perilous situation. When Julia was somewhat reanimated, they proceeded up the country in search of a dwelling. They had traveled near half a league when the savage features of the country began to soften and gradually changed to the picturesque beauty of Sicilian scenery. They now discovered at some distance a villa seated on gentle eminence crowned with woods. It was the first human habitation they had seen since they embarked for Italy, and Julia, who was almost sinking with fatigue, beheld it with delight. The captain and his men hastened towards it to make known their distress, while Ferdinand and Julia slowly followed. They observed the men enter the villa, one of whom quickly returned to acquaint them with the hospitable reception his comrades had received. Julia, with difficulty, reached the edifice, at the door of which she was met by a young cavalier, whose pleasing and intelligent countenance immediately interested her in his favor. He welcomed the strangers with a benevolent politeness that dissolved at once every comfortable feeling which their situation had excited, and produced an instantaneous easy confidence. Through a light and elegant hall, rising into a dome supported by pillars of white marble and adorned with busts, he led them to a magnificent vestibule which opened upon a lawn. Having seated them at a table spread with refreshments, he left them, and they surveyed with surprise the beauty of the adjacent scene. The lawn, which was on each side bounded by hanging woods, descended in gentle declivity to a fine lake, whose smooth surface reflected the surrounding shades. Beyond appeared the distant country, arising on the left into bold romantic mountains, and on the right, exhibiting a soft and glowing landscape, whose tranquil beauty formed a striking contrast to the wild sublimity of the opposite craggy heights. The blue and distant ocean terminated the view. In a short time the cavalier returned, conducting two ladies of a very engaging appearance, whom he presented as his wife and sister. They welcomed Julia with graceful kindness, but fatigue soon obliged her to retire to rest, and a consequent indisposition increased so rapidly as to render it impracticable for her to quit her present abode on that day. The captain and his men proceeded on their way, leaving Ferdinand and Julia at the villa, where she experienced every kind and tender affection. The day which was to have devoted Julia to a cloister was ushered in at the abbey with the usual ceremonies. The church was ornamented and all the inhabitants of the monastery prepared to attend. The padre abate now exulted in the success of his scheme and anticipated in imagination the rage and vexation of the marquis when he should discover that his daughter was lost to him forever. The hour of celebration arrived, and he entered the church with a proud, firm step, and with a countenance which depictured his inward triumph. He was proceeding to the high altar when he was told that Julia was nowhere to be found. Astonishment for a while suspended other emotions. He yet believed it impossible that she could have effected an escape, and ordered every part of the abbey to be searched, not forgetting the secret caverns belonging to the monastery, which wound beneath the woods. When the search was over, and he became convinced she was fled, the deep workings of his disappointed passions fermented into rage which exceeded all bounds. He denounced the most terrible judgments upon Julia, 
and calling for Madame de Menon, charged her with having insulted her holy religion, in being accessory to the flight of Julia. Madame endured these reproaches with calm dignity, and preserved a steady silence, but she secretly determined to leave the monastery, and seek in another the repose which she could never hope to find in this. The report of Julia's disappearance spread rapidly beyond the walls, and soon reached the ears of the Marquis, who rejoiced in the circumstance, believing that she must now inevitably fall into his hands. After his people, in obedience to his orders, had carefully searched the surrounding woods and rocks, he withdrew them from the abbey, and having dispersed them various ways in search of Julia, he returned to the castle of Mazzini. Here new vexation awaited him, for he now first learned that Ferdinand had escaped from confinement. The mystery of Julia's flight was now dissolved, for it was evident by whose means she had effected it, and the Marquis issued orders to his people to secure Ferdinand wherever he should be found. End of chapter 12